From TomDispatch.com, this is TomCast. Interviews and insight from Tom Dispatch contributors for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of our post-9-11 world and a clear sense of how our global imperial system actually works. I'm Timothy McBain. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking again with John Pfeffer, the co-director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, Open Society Fellow, and author most recently of Crusade 2.0, The West's Resurgent War on Islam. We began our conversation by talking about the different manifestations of American power, hard, soft, smart, and dumb. For the most part, the United States, I think, adhered to this notion of hard power, the use of military power to achieve its objectives overseas, until the end of the Cold War. Uh, And the end of the Cold War, I think, Uh, prompted a rethink, not only among policymakers, but among the intellectual elites that think about geopolitics here in the United States. And kind of preeminent among those intellectual elites, Joseph Nye at Harvard, who published a book in 1990 called Bound to Lead. And in that book, he introduces this notion of soft power. And Nye's idea was that Uh, the United States should think more about other ways of influencing countries and actors overseas, Uh, that the Pentagon was not the only tool, so to speak, in the toolbox, that uh, we should think about political influence, we should think about cultural influence, uh, we should look at how non-governmental actors promote U.S values overseas. Um, this was not, not new, of course. I mean, obviously, the State Department existed before 1990, and the United States engaged in cultural diplomacy before 1990, but it was grouped under this new term of soft power. And the notion somehow that with the Soviet Union no longer being around, the United States no longer had to focus so much on the Pentagon and on hard power. Now, a lot of critics of soft power, and I'm I'm certainly one of them, pointed out that really there was no re-examination of of the goals of U.S. policy. It was only a question of tactics. Uh, From Nye's point of view and many other adherents to soft power conception, um, the United States should still attempt to maintain its kind of unipolar position in the world as, as the single superpower emerging from the Cold War, it should simply do so in more sophisticated and perhaps more palatable from the point of view of global public opinion means. And so this is how soft power comes to be understood. Now, after 9-11, the term soft somehow doesn't quite uh, capture, doesn't quite uh, speak to the new neoconservative moment in the United States. Certainly, after 9-11, George W. Bush is not going to get up in front of Congress and say, we have to have a soft power response to al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So we see a reemergence of, of hard power, of focus on the Pentagon and of, of military tactics to achieve U.S. aims overseas. But by the time we get to uh, President Obama, uh, we're, we're looking at, again, a, a different shift in rhetoric, a different shift in emphasis. Soft power, the term soft, is still no longer a uh, palatable kind of rhetorical device. Instead, we see smart power. And this, of course, 
fits in well with the whole notion of President Obama as a, as a more sophisticated, more intellectual, more politically adroit politician. He, of course, is going to you know look for something that is smart. Now, what is smart power? I mean, it's not that different from soft power as Joseph Nye articulated it. It simply says that we should use both soft and hard power uh, when we're looking at situations overseas, and we should be kind of smart about which means we use in which circumstances. And so that's kind of the, uh, the overview, shall we say, of soft, hard, and smart power. And, and as a critic of, of soft power, as you look at this, do you see any advantage of just maybe seeing the lesser of two evils in a certain situation? Or is there another alternative that you have in mind, another way to approach these uh, international issues? Now, of course, if we're looking at, you know, the realm of the possible in Washington, D.C., often we're going to be looking at soft power as, you know, a much more palatable, much more acceptable um, way of, uh, of conducting U.S. policy than, than letting the Pentagon call all the shots. Um, so, for instance, yes, of course, I'd rather see reconstruction in Iraq, reconstruction in Afghanistan, as opposed to destruction in either of those countries. Bombs raining down uh, from bombers? No. Uh, State Department contractors working to build roads? Yes, that's much better, of course. But uh, the question really is, should we be in Iraq or Afghanistan to begin with? Yes, we at this point owe a certain debt to the people of Afghanistan and Iraq because of the wars that we started there. But should we be the ones kind of leading this reconstruction effort or should we be playing a much more modest role in facilitating the reconstruction of those countries by the people themselves? So the issue really is a, a one of agency. Who is going to be in charge? Should it be the United States using whether soft power or hard power, or should the United States really be working with other people? Now, Joseph Nye, of course, formulated soft power as working with others as opposed to over others. But when you looked at soft power in operation, it was much more frequently the United States working either unilaterally or first among equals, retaining its kind of leadership role, so to speak, in a, in a coalition of the willing, whether we're talking about, you know, a, a geopolitical war or we're talking about, you know, so-called reconstruction within a particular country. Uh, so th that is the alternative that I would put out there, that the United States rethink its role as a dominant world power, rethink its role as the single superpower left standing after the end of the Cold War, and understand how it can play well with others, really function in uh, a new world order in which we see a much more dispersed set of actors on the world stage. Uh, you know, obviously Brazil, Russia, India, China, the BRICS, but a range of other countries as well that have emerged as important global actors. And the United States is still looking uh, at this world as if it were uh, the world of, of the Cold War. And and one thing you talk about in your article is how the Pentagon is trying to make itself indispensable by rebranding itself as a humanitarian organization. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how they're doing that and how they're manipulating their position on the world stage? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I think the Pentagon 
you know, saw the writing on the wall uh, when the wall came down in 1989. They saw that uh, their own mission, which was, of course, to to contain uh, the Soviet Union and to push back against communist influence all over the world, they were going to have a difficult time, you know, raising a budget and uh, convincing people of their indispensable role in U.S. foreign policy absent uh, this communist adversary. And I think beginning in the 1990s, it it started to look at other different missions and roles, whether uh, humanitarian relief or uh, post-earthquake or post-tsunami assistance, uh, working on environmental issues. I mean, a wide range of capacities which previously had existed in other agencies, whether the State Department or EPA or, or AID, Suddenly, the Pentagon was very interested in these other activities. Now, after, again, after 9-11, the Pentagon kind of uh, saw that its hard power mission was revived. The, the George W. Bush administration saw the Pentagon as kind of the leading edge of U.S. foreign policy, and it didn't have to you know, worry so much about budget cuts. Obviously, it, it, the Pentagon's budget doubled uh, after, between, in the decade after uh, 9/11, uh, and so the pressure wasn't so so heavy on it to to rethink its its mission or to rebrand itself, so to speak. But as we head into a financial crisis, and uh, even Republicans on the Hill start talking about the necessity of of cutting Pentagon spending, someone as conservative as Tom Coburn uh, calling for you know a trillion dollars in his budget over last summer in Pentagon uh, cuts over a 10-year period, the Pentagon again sees that writing reappear on the wall and, and starts again to put more emphasis on these other missions that it can uh, accomplish around the world. And the difference now as compared to the 1990s is it's no longer the Pentagon by itself trying to carve out these new missions for itself. It becomes, along with the State Department, a kind of new way of the United States looking at these issues. So instead of just having a quadrennial defense review, we're looking at a much more expanded process in which the State Department and the Pentagon are looking at uh, defense, diplomacy, and development all together, and how the Pentagon can be integrated into this. Uh, so no longer is the Pentagon simply trying by itself in other words, to rebrand itself. But the whole U.S. government has rebranded its foreign policy and inserted the Pentagon and its hard power um, and non-military missions, uh, integrated that with uh, all of the agencies working on U.S. foreign policy. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, that's a great thing, you know. Um, In some ways, we're kind of... um, we're turning swords into plowshares. We're turning the swords of the Pentagon into the plowshares of development or environmental work overseas. Isn't it great that U.S. soldiers are no longer killing people, but actually helping people, uh, the victims of earthquakes and tsunamis and so forth? And yes, uh, part of me says that is a great thing. Um, I would like to see the Pentagon turn into an entirely different agency. On the other hand, Uh, we also see a problem because the introduction of the Pentagon and of U.S. soldiers into other missions compromises the integrity of those missions. So, for instance, when uh, U.S. soldiers are the ones who are delivering humanitarian assistance uh, in a politically 
ambiguous situation or a politically charged environment, then the whole kind of mission of the provision of U.S. aid, humanitarian assistance, becomes suspect because it's now associated with the U.S. military and potentially with U.S. military objectives. And those U.S. military objectives, of course, in the past have always had uh, political motivations behind them, whether, you know, propping up a government or undermining a government or ensuring the access to uh, mineral uh, or oil resources, etc., etc. So the introduction of the Pentagon into these other missions, unfortunately, compromises these missions as well. I'm curious to hear your reaction to the Republican Democratic conventions. Are there any talking points that you see as relevant or do you see also issues that they're making a point to avoid? Well, the the big missing piece, of course, at, at the Republican convention, and I suspect it will be somewhat the same at the Democratic convention, is foreign policy in general. Uh, the Republicans basically have nothing they can say on foreign policy that would distinguish them sharply from the Democrats. About the only thing that Mitt Romney has managed to to say that that's different in any respect is that he would increase U.S. military spending, whereas the Obama administration, of course, have, have put forward a, a program of, of very modest decreases in uh, Pentagon spending over the next 10 years. Everything else is pretty much the same. Of course, Romney has taken a somewhat more aggressive line toward China, toward Russia, toward Iran. But honestly, the Obama administration and the Democratic Party more generally has taken a pretty militarist approach to most areas of the world. There are, of course, some exceptions. Burma, for instance, where we've seen the Obama administration reach out to a reforming junta there. But in other respects, we've seen the Obama administration maintain a pretty hard line toward Iran, toward North Korea. It has not been particularly forthcoming with Russia, which has prompted considerable complaints from Moscow. In addition, the Obama administration, of course, has increased drone attacks, uh, has the record uh, or on its record the the killing of Osama bin Laden. And so uh, there's very little the Republicans can do to prove that they're more hawkish than the Obama administration, and therefore they've basically not talked very much about national security. Uh, The Democrats at the convention, of course, will say some things to, to bolster their hawk credentials, the fact that Obama has proved himself not to be weak and vacillating on national security issues, but has continued, in fact, many of the policies of the George W. Bush administration. The emphasis, of course, uh, at the Republican convention, and this will be the same at the Democratic convention, will be the economy. And again, this will replay throughout, I think, the election season up up until November, and we won't see the return of foreign policy uh, until after the elections. My guess is, as I write in the, the piece at Tom Dispatch, that uh, we really won't see much of a change if Romney is elected, uh, because his foreign policy isn't terribly different from uh, Obama's. And if Obama were to be reelected, I don't think we'd see much of a change in his policy over the next four years, even though he would not have the uh, the challenge of a of a reelection campaign, you know, uh, weighing on his shoulders. Therefore, 
theoretically freeing him up to do perhaps some more uh, radical things overseas. But given his record and what he has said, I don't really think we'd see an emergence of a new President Obama in a second term, one who uh, embraces, shall we say, his softer side. To read John Pfeffer's article, Dumb and Dumber, Obama's Smart Power Foreign Policy, Not Smart at All, please visit TomDispatch.com. You can also find John's latest book, Crusade 2.0, at Amazon.com or at any quality bookstore near you. I'm Timothy McBain, and until we meet again, thanks for listening.